Thanks for checking out this episode of the Christ Alone podcast. What we'll be listening to today is a, a sermon I preached uh, several years ago, and I've decided to pull them out of the closet and share them here for my Christ Alone audience. The series that I'm sharing here is called uh, Seven Sayings from the Cross. It's based on the seven last words or sayings of Jesus as he hung on the cross, Good Friday. So, as always, thanks for listening to the Christ Alone podcast. If you would like any more information on the gospel, if you have any questions, or like to comment any further on the content of the Christ Alone podcast, please get a hold of me. I would love to hear any feedback. And about the easiest way to get a hold of me is on Facebook, facebook.com backslash Dolacek, D-O-L-E-C-H-E-C-K. Or if you found this podcast some other way, the podcast feed is christalone.podbean.com. And I'd love to hear from you. So without any further ado, here is the sermon from the series Seven Sayings from the Cross. Father, I thank you for this morning. It is always a privilege and a pleasure to gather together as believers and to open up your word. I just ask for your anointing in this place this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be moving strong, that it would be opening eyes to see and opening ears to hear and opening hearts to believe who you are and and to rejoice in the glory of the gospel message. I thank you that you are not a God who stood far off and made us guess about who you are, but that you are a God who came and dwelt among us, and you're a God who inspired men to write down the Bible that we might know specifically who you are and what your plan is and what you're doing with mankind and what you're doing in humanity and and what you want to do with us. And I'm grateful for that this morning, God, that you have revealed yourself to us. And so we just ask this morning for your Holy Spirit to be present, that we might see you clearly that we might treasure Christ, that we might then as we go into a time of song, that we might rejoice in who You are and what You've done for us. We thank You for Your Son Jesus Christ this morning. Pray God that we would see Him for the Rescuer that He really is. That we would see Him for the Rescuer that He really is. God, I thank You that that it's a message we can dig deeper and deeper and deeper into, that the riches of the gospel are inexhaustible. And so for everyone in this room, no matter, no matter how many years we may have spent studying the gospel, we get the joy and the privilege of digging deeper into what the gospel is and what you have done in Christ for us. God, help us to see and hear and believe on you in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. We'll be in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. The the two thieves on either side of Christ is where we're going to go into this conversation. But I want to just first, before we get too much into the text, um, last week we talked about Jesus' first, or last week, last month, um, Christ's first word from the cross was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And His first word from the cross was a prayer. But I want at the same time we can launch into Jesus' statements on the cross and divorce it from the reality of what's going on on the cross. 
And I don't want to just have the cross held up as some sort of religious ideal, but a reality that the cross really happened and that it was a very tough and difficult um, experience for our Savior. The fact that Christ said anything in His crucifixion is astonishing. It's interesting that Christ was crucified because it allowed for so much conversation to happen that we see in Christ a man who's in control of his death. He says clearly in the Scriptures that no one takes my life from me, but that I give it up of my own accord. And so we see a man dying on a cross very much in control of everything that's going on and saying specific things. And we have seven specific words that Christ speaks to us. But I want to quickly just run through the context of what Jesus is going through. He's arrested though he never did anything wrong. Christ was sinless. He was perfect. He had done no wrong. This is a review from last month. So you may not want to write these down if you don't want to. He was betrayed by one of his own. Judas, who he'd ministered with for three years and ate bread with, slept with, had conversation with, betrays him to the authorities, sells him up for money, betrays him with a kiss. He's deserted by all of his friends. Peter, the man who is bold and says, Christ, I'll never forsake you. If they kill me, I'll not forsake you is bested by a girl, a schoolgirl in the courtyard, is embarrassed at, at, by, you know, is just humiliated. Be, Jesus, at the time of His death, is betrayed by everyone. He is put on false trial. They bring up um, inaccurate, total lie charges against Christ. He is mocked as a prophet. They say they put a cloak over His head, beat Him with sticks, and say, prophesy which one of us hits you. And they just mock him as a prophet. We know that Christ probably could have told them who hit him because he was a prophet. But he doesn't. He accepts the beating. He's brutally beaten. This cross is not the um, picture that you have in your children's Bible that you grow up with where they have the guy you know, walking with his cross. The, Isaiah tells us that, that Christ is going to be unrecognizable as he goes to the cross. He... Um, undergoes scourging, which is just an unbelievable amount of torture. We complain about waterboarding as being torture, which I agree with. That's, I mean, nothing compared to the scourging that these men underwent with the cat of nine tails striping Jesus' back in fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Men often died just from scourging. They'd have ribs pulled out of their side and would often die just from a scourging. Then he is, after he is scourged, crowned of thorn, put on his head, beaten up, put on trial, stayed up all night going back and forth on these trials. He is then given a cross to carry up the hill to the place of the skull, to the hill called Golgotha. And he's, he's exhausted to the point that they have to have a man, Simon of Cyrene, help him carry his cross up. I say all of this because what would you say at this moment? I mean, what would you say... After a night like this, a false accusation, you are being put to death for crimes you did not earthly commit under the authorities. We'll get into substitution atonement, substitutionary atonement here in a bit. But what, in this moment, can you imagine what would be going through? Christ was a 100% man. We have the hypostatic union. He was fully God and fully man. Christ on the cross is not there as some sort of transcendental being that didn't experience pain. He's man as much as you are here. He stubs his toe, it hurts. He's cut, he bleeds. 
It hurts. It's painful. And so this fully God, yet fully man, man, is dying on a cross, uh, having gone through all of these things, and what would you say? And so we find just reason to just stand in amazement. This man is the Son of God dying on a cross that has amazing words for us as he hangs. Mary to carry the cross and nail to it. Let's read the text. Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. Jesus is crucified not alone on a cross, on his own cross, but he's crucified with two additional criminals, one on either side. One of the criminals, Luke 23, verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged with him railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sins of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And here's the word. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Today I say to you, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' second word is spoken in conversation with a thief there on the cross. And I want to look at just four. Why is why is Jesus crucified between two criminals? I want to look at three reasons. Um, I got three points, but my what I want to stress most of all this morning, is you're a thief. Christ is crucified alongside of two thieves. So I want to just lay these points out so that if you forget everything else I say this morning, you remember these two points. You're a thief. This is a picture of you. This is a picture of you. You're a thief. You're a sinner. The reason why Christ is nailed up beside two thieves, two criminals, is to get the message to us that there's hope for thieves. There is hope for thieves. So there's hope for sinners. And we see this in this conversation Christ has here on the cross. Four huge reasons, three huge reasons why Christ is, is nailed between two criminals. The first one is that it's in fulfillment, fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53 says that He's going to be numbered with the transgressors. That's Isaiah 53.12. That He's going to be Numbered with the transgressors. God is amazing. God is amazing. The fact that Isaiah, hundreds of years before the crucifixion, lays out the exact example, the exact way that it's going to go down, is supposed to blow your mind. Christ, later on, one of his words is going to be, give me something to drink. I thirst. And it's actually, Christ knows that he needs to drink bitter what water in fulfillment of prophecy. And so he knows this needs to happen, so he calls for it. This is a circumstance beyond Christ's control, yet it goes exactly as Scripture prophesied that it would. God is not out of control at this moment. Christ is not put on the cross because God lost control and they killed His Son. God is in control of everything. God is in control of this moment. He is sovereign over everything that happens, including, Acts tells us plainly, the crucifixion of His Son. That God is in charge of this moment to the extent of 
God knows that when He is crucified, He's going to be numbered with transgressors. And that He is put to death on a cross beside two criminals. It highlights substitution. Substitutionary atonement is evident in the cross of Christ. God does not sit in heaven and just decree because He's a loving God, which He is, just forget about it. I know you're all sinners, but I'm a really loving guy, and so we'll just forget all that happened. God is totally loving. And that attribute, you can't make that attribute too big. God is love. And He loves in ways we can't comprehend. But that is not at odds with or in contradiction to God is a just God. And there's just penalty for sin. So God, because He is totally just and totally loving, He can't just decree, forget about it. Something has to happen with the penalty that we deserve for our sin. And so what we see in substitution and in Christ coming to earth to die on a cross is that God is not just sitting in heaven decreeing something. He's literally, physically doing something with sin. And He's coming to earth and He's dying on a cross in a very real way, a substitutionary way, to die a sinner's death. The picture of the three crosses is to humble ourselves to the reality of God's grace. These thieves hung, I would assume, I guess I don't know the exact um, geometrical math, I hung equal distance from Christ. Christ's in the center, typically our picture is. I mean, I guess we, then, and both of them talk to Christ on the cross. Both of them talk to Christ on the cross. We know from Matthew's Gospel that the thieves, both as they went, were, were, um, making fun of Jesus. Both thieves, they, Matthew includes, as they start being crucified, are against Christ. They are hung together with Christ. They both talk with Christ. One sinner is saved. One thief is saved. One thief is not. And you, it, it is to humble ourselves to the reality of the majesty of God's saving grace. The mystery and the majesty of God's saving grace. It wasn't that one thief was closer or did well, I mean, anything better. They're both on the cross. One is saved and one is not. So my point is not to discourage you and to think, well, what if I'm that thief that doesn't get saved? My point is this, that you should pray, God, give me eyes to see like the thief who was saved. And that when you have eyes that see, when you're a thief that is saved, you are to turn around and say, God's grace is amazing. That though I'm a thief, I was given eyes that I might see. It's to humble ourselves to the reality of God's grace. You're one of two thieves this morning. You're one of two thieves this morning. Um, one is saved. One sees. One is aware of what is going on and cries out to the Savior and is redeemed, is reconciled, is given the righteousness of Christ. One thief persists in his hatred towards God and towards the saving work of his Son and perishes. You're one of two thieves this morning. The the question of whether you're a thief isn't really up for debate. Though in our culture, we would like to say that it is. We would say, well, there's those two thieves that were crucified. And then there's Jesus, and He's really cool, and He's great. And then there's all of us out in the crowd that are not so bad. We're not on the cross. We're not um, dying on the cross. We're not thieves. But we're not Christ either. We're just kind of middlemen. There's no middlemen. The Gospel makes no allowances. The Scripture makes no allowance for a middleman. 
You're a thief or you're Christ. Please don't start telling me you're Christ. We're going to have serious trouble if you start claiming that you're the perfect one suffering for things you don't deserve. We're either You're either a thief or you're Jesus. And none of you are Jesus. None of you are Jesus. So that leaves you in one remaining category. You're a thief. You're a sinner. Oh, Darren, I've never stolen anything. Every time we're created to glorify God, every time that you do anything that does not point back to God, that does not rejoice in who God is, that does not give glory to God, you're thieving God. You're stealing from God. Because life is created to glorify Him. Um, you're, you're a sinner. Romans 3.23 says quite plainly, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's righteous standard, of the glory of God, of glorifying God. You're all thieves. We're, we're not Christ. There's two categories. And the thing is, is you're not a thief who... Um, Jesus says very plainly in Luke 11.23, He says, you're either for Me or you're against Me. There isn't any middle ground. If you're in this room this morning, you're either for Christ, and if you're not 100%, I'm a thief that needs Christ, you're a thief who's against Christ. Jesus, um, that may sound hard coming from a pulpit. Well, this guy is being real judgmental, saying that either you've got to be Jesus or there's no choice, you're a sinner. This isn't my words. This is Christ's words. That you're either for me or you're against me. You're a thief in, the, in this room this morning. You're a sinner. You belong on that cross beside Christ. And, and in this picture, God is creating a microcosm of reality. You're one of two thieves. You are a thief and you're one of two thieves. You're either the thief who sees Christ for who He really is and is saved. And that's my prayer for all of us this morning, for myself this morning, is that I'd be the thief that sees Christ clearly and is saved. Or you're the thief who persists in your own arrogance, who persists in your own self-whatever, self-reliance, and perishes. And my prayer this morning is that you would be the thief that we would be thieves that see and are saved. That we would be thieves that see and are saved. What does this sinner see? What does this thief see that the other one doesn't see? Let's get into our text. I've been talking for a long time without being in the text. That's not good. We'll get to the text here. The thief sees four things. More points for you. The thief sees four things that the other thief does not see. The first thing that the thief sees, the thief that sees and is saved, he sees, first off, his own sinfulness. He sees his own sinfulness. Verse 41 in in the Gospel of Luke here says that, um, he's talking to the other thief in verse 40, he says, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. The the, The thief that sees clearly who Christ is and is saved sees his sinfulness. He sees that, you know what? I transgressed against God. I'm not going to pretend like I'm not a thief. I am not going to pretend like I'm the one who belongs in church this morning because I'm better than all those who don't aren't in church this morning. I'm a better thief. No, there's no better thieves and worse thieves. There's thieves and there's Christ. And this one thief sees there's only two categories. And he's admitting, I'm here justly because I'm a thief. I'm here justly because I'm a sinner. He sees the reality of his own sinfulness. I have transgressed against a holy and righteous God. 
I'd follow not in my father God, but I'd follow in my father Adam, who from the day one desired to make himself God instead of worship the true God. And that the one, the one thief, the one sinner sees and admits, you know what? I am a sinner. I have transgressed against a holy God. The second thing he sees is that what he's suffering is a just penalty. We indeed justly, for we are receiving, here in verse 41, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. My condemnation is just. The, the sinner, that, the thief that sees, sees. There's so many S's in what I'm saying. I, can't, I should have tried a different letter. S is just too tough. The sinner sees his own just penalty. Thieves deserve something. And Romans 6.23 tells us plainly what it is that we deserve. And it is the wages of our sin is death. It is a physical death absolutely one day. And God in His grace and His uh, loving, uh, overarching grace allows people to persist in physical life though He has every reason to yank it from us. Even the unrepentant and the un, un, um, unregenerate get to live physically by the grace of God. First Peter tells us that God in His grace is giving them time to reach repentance. But He has every right to take physical death from us. He lets us live for a little while longer here on this earth. But beyond that, we also deserve eternal death. Separation from God. No right to have any sort of connection with the holy God who created us and has designed paradise, eternal life for us. We have no right to that. That is the just penalty. When you sin, it is not just against another sinner, though it often is. In marriage, if I sin, I do sin against my wife and do things that she does not like for me to do. But my main problem is not just that I've sinned against my wife, it's that I have in my rebellion sinned against the holy and righteous God. And your, the problem with your sin is that it's not primarily with other people, though it is, it's that it's against a holy, righteous, just, and perfect God. And because it is against Him, my penalty does not just come from my wife, though sometimes it does. <laughs> Husbands, amen me on that. Uh, but my penalty that I deserve is from a righteous and holy God who, who says my condemnation is death. Romans 5, something or other, page I looked up, is that through Adam all men sin, and because all men sin, so came death. And that is the just penalty. This man sees. And I want you to be this thief while I'm going through these points. I want you to see these and rejoice in them and love them and treasure them because I want you to be a thief that sees and is saved. He sees his own sinfulness. He sees his just penalty. Third thing he sees, somebody's different here. Somebody's different in this picture. One of these things is not like the others. He's early Sesame Street here. One of these things is not like the others. And he sees Christ and he says, he says that this man in the verse 41, this man has done nothing wrong. This man is perfect. This man is righteous. This man is not getting what he deserves. There's a mystery here. The mystery of substitution. Christ getting what he does not deserve. What we deserve. The substitutionary atonement is that what Christ did not deserve, he took on our behalf. And what He earned, which is our righteousness, or right standing with God, He gave to us double imputation. 
This Something is different about this man. And I want you to see this morning, and you've seen it before, and maybe or maybe you haven't. I don't know. I'm not going to judge your heart. Whether you have or haven't, I want you to see fresh something is different about this man. Something is unique and special and glorious and wonderful about Christ. Some Jesus is different. He sees this man's righteousness and he sees Christ as a rescuer. He says, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your heaven, into your kingdom. He knew his only hope was that this different man rescued him. He knew that his only hope was that this one who is unique would rescue him. He knew it was his only hope. He knew that his only hope was that this one who is different, that he's hung on a cross with, would rescue him. It was his only hope. And you know what? It's your only hope too. It is your only hope too. Is that this one who is different, who is other, something special about this one righteous man. Our only hope is that he would be our rescuer. And it's a great hope. The man asked for, just quickly, he asked, he asked, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But Jesus' promise to him is not just that he would remember him. It's not just that he would be some win when he comes into his kingdom. And it wouldn't just be some earthly kingdom. He's just saying, you know what? When you get there, I just want to be remembered. I just want to be remembered. Some win, you know, I don't know, whenever it happens, I want to be remembered in your kingdom that you're going to set up. And what does Jesus promise him? Sometimes, I mean, I want you to be blown away by what Christ has given us. I want us to be blown away and worship in what Christ has given us. So many times we just got, we just want to be remembered some win time by somebody. Jesus' promise is far above and greater than what this criminal asked for. And I want to dare to say to you that no mind has conceived, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love Him. God has, for those who are in Christ and place faith in Christ, what you have is astounding for you. He doesn't just say remember. He says, you'll be with me. I'm not just going to remember you. I'm going to be with you. It's not going to be just some win. It's today. Today. Truly I say unto you, today you will be with me. And it isn't just in some, you know, fallen paradise or kingdom that Christ is in charge of but has its flaws. He says, you're going to be with me in paradise. And in the world as God designed for it to be. Christ promises a hope that is far over and above what this thief could ask for. Christ promises a future for you that is beyond your imagination. He promises a future for you that is beyond your imagination. If you'll be the thief who sees sees his sinfulness and sees his own just penalty, sees Christ as someone different and sees Him as His only rescue. What a great promise this sinner is given and what a great promise we are given. What great hope. It's this sinner's great hope and it's your great hope too. What are you hoping in this morning? What are you hoping in this morning? We have a world full of people hoping in things that are not going to pay off for them. And I want this church to be full of people who are different. Hoping in, I don't know, their intelligence. Hoping, hoping in their ability to communicate. Hoping in people's forgetfulness. You know, Hoping in all kinds of things that will make things better. Our hope is Christ. 
Our hope is Christ. Our hope is the reconciliation for us that He won. It makes great difference not just... If, if, if all the difference that it made was for our eternity, that's pretty good. And if it were for nothing here whatsoever, that is enough to rejoice and praise Him the remainder of our days. That someday when I cross that line like that thief did, that day I will be with Him in paradise in God's world as He designed it to be. That should, that's enough to get excited about and to praise His name for. It has amazing promise for your future. It has amazing benefit for your today. It has amazing benefit for your today. Christ wants to make a difference for you right now, in your relationships right now, in your job right now, in your life as you know it right now, to see the grace, the grace that God has given you it's calling us to be gracious. It's calling us to be grateful. I don't have time for these points. And calling us to be glorifying to God. Great impact for your day today if you truly see Christ as your rescuer. In your marriage, if you really see Christ as your rescuer, if you really see yourself as a thief and as a sinner who deserves justice, which is death, but Christ takes it for you and rescues you and empowers you to be graceful, in your marriage. That I didn't get what I deserved. And it wasn't because I earned something different. It's because God decided to be graceful to me. And your jobs it makes a difference with your employer because it's no longer about getting what you deserve. In fact, you pray, God, I don't ever want to get what I deserve. A Christian should never pray, we want justice. No, you do not want justice. You get mercy and you're grateful and you're blown away by it. And so that truth empowers you too in your marriage when things go wrong to flood your spouse with grace. To flood your boss with grace. To flood your co-workers with grace. It empowers you to be grateful. Man, I have been given so much that I do not deserve that I can overlook the flaws and be grateful for what I have. I deserve nothing. And yet, look at all that I've been given. And it gives us power to be glorifying to God. He has given us a far greater treasure so that you're free to lose in your marriage. You're free to take back seat in your marriage. You're free to take back seat at your job. You're free to take back seat in your friendships because it's no longer about you being right. It's about that in Christ I have everything that I need and I can humble myself. I can take a back seat. I can be more concerned with your interests than my interests. Because in Christ, I can get nothing else from this day forward. And I have everything I need. And it empowers me to glorify God by saying I treasure Christ over everything. And if you want to do it your way, under the authority of lawfulness in God's kingdom, then that's the way that I want to do it because Christ is my treasure over anything else that I can get. In all of these moments, make Christ your hope. See your sinfulness. See the just penalty that you deserve. See Christ is different and offers you a reconciliation.